welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 27, recorded on June 14th, 2019. Microsoft and Oracle interconnect with the Cloud Pod. Well, good evening, Peter. How's it going? Going well. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Jonathan can't make it today, so it's just going to be you and me. So we'll uh, we'll get through this as best we can. Yeah, we'll hold down the fort. Yeah, I mean, we don't have that, that British accent to uh, add a little something to the podcast, but uh, hopefully the listeners don't mind too much. Ah, <laughs> uh, I know. We'll miss that, and we'll miss his deep technical insights. Indeed, indeed. Well, hopefully he's good, and we will see him next week on the show. Let's uh, let's get into some uh, news and follow up first. Uh, so first of all, when you were when you were gone and we had Elise uh, here, we talked about SOC uh, one, two, and three, and uh, I had made a statement that was slightly incorrect, uh, and so I thought I'd clarify that because I feel our listeners need to know the truth. Um, so the SOC three report, as I mentioned on the show, is uh, actually I was accurate on that. Uh, it is freely distributed, whereas a SOC one or two can only be read by the user organization that relies on your services. So basically, if you are contracting with a SaaS service and you want to see their SOC one and two, you're allowed to do that because you have a contract. If you don't have a contract but you want to know what they have uh, certification-wise uh, before you contract with them, then you can read their SOC three report. I mentioned in the podcast type one versus type two. Uh, and I confused SOC 1 with type 1. Uh, so SOC 1 is required for financial sign-off by your CFO um, if the solution is used in the material finances of your business. But all of these, SOC 1 through 3, have a type 1 and a type 2. Uh, type 1 being you just have to provide a report of the procedures and controls your organization has put in place. Type 2, you actually have an audit period to provide evidence that those controls you had um, are actually being followed and utilized. And so I had said uh, SOC 1 was the financial part, but I also said it was the type one as well, which is not true. Uh, so every one of these ah. has a type one and a type two. And so I thought I'd clarify that for the listeners. Uh, the next big follow-up item is uh, the Google RCA uh, for incident 19009. Uh, they published this right after we recorded, of course, uh, and basically break down in pretty technical detail uh, what went wrong in their infrastructure. Uh, I can sort of summarize it down to uh, they have cluster management software that manages um, how different software components or services are distributed in their data centers. They had a maintenance event happening at a data center as well as the scheduling software descheduled their network control uh, plane. And basically they removed all of their network control and the system basically Oops. ended up uh, losing the ability to route packets through different BGP uh, partners and they lost a significant amount of their network capacity. If I were to summarize it in the best summary and chief method I can, um, but, you know, NetNet, they said this was a pretty big failure for them. Uh, they had to send people on site to potentially resolve some of these issues due to the fact that the network's down, you can't recover the service. Uh, and so they the, have several things they're going to do. That's the things. kicker. Yeah. We have tools to fix this. Great. Spin it up. Wait a minute. Can't SSH to that box. <laughs> yeah. Network's down. So it's a, it's yeah. a pretty detailed write-up if you're like me and you really do enjoy reading through um, SRE forensic reports. This is a, a fantastic one that you should check out uh, right up there with some of the best Amazon ones and some of the best Azure ones. Uh, and do check it out. They are going to be making some changes to their automation uh, to prevent this, of course, which is what you do. And they'll be adding appropriate safeguards to uh, avoid descheduling all of their networking control plane <laughs> simultaneously across multiple regions. Uh, which was what happened to them in this particular scenario. So they will be figuring this fixed, I'm sure, very quickly 
uh, to prevent this from happening again. Yeah, it just reminds me of two things. Uh, the first, no matter how much you try, you're, there are going to be failure cases. And the other is, I'm so glad I'm not running a hyperscaler. <laughs> yeah. What I, kind of work, man. I, I, I have a hard enough time sleeping sometimes with just my infrastructure and thinking about trying to run everyone in infrastructure just would keep me up at night all the time. Yeah. So, uh, but if you are or impacted by the outage, you are eligible for SLA credits. Um, you do need to go request them through the SLA request form, uh, which is linked in the incident reports in the show notes. Uh, so do get in and request your SLA credit as you will get some money back uh, for this accident. So good. That's the, that's it for follow-up this week. Awesome. Uh, we're going to jump right on into topics. Uh, so Google has released a, a new Translate API capability to help localization experts and global enterprises. Um, Google Cloud Translate is, of course, one of their oldest AI products. Uh, and now with the new release of Translation API version 3, uh, they have several new capabilities, including a new custom glossary for things like company-specific names and vocabulary. Uh, you can now use pre-trained models, or you can use your own custom model translations to streamline your workflow. And you can translate larger volumes of content in one translation request for text and HTML files stored on the cloud. Um, they have several technology partners who uh, partner with them to help you do translations uh, beyond the automated modeling. And there's quite a bit of stuff in this for you. Uh, pricing remains pretty much the same. Uh, text translation is about $20, million, uh, $20 per million characters. Uh, text translation using AutoML is about $80 per million characters. And language detection, regardless of cost, uh, regardless of quantity, is $20 per million. Last time I went to Europe last summer, we were using Google Translate app. And it was just incredible watching a menu live, real-time, on your phone change from one language to another. What an amazing technology. I can't wait to see what other people are building with this stuff. Yeah, no, that... that uh picture you know they take, you take the app and you basically point at a signpost and it literally changes in the fly like that is my dream of uh, augmented reality so i hope that yeah someday that is kind of the standard that we use for all automated reality and then if their voice stuff can get good enough maybe we get the babblefish uh, to help translate languages on the fly which would be really cool totally yeah yeah but I'm, it's definitely a, a cool product and I, i'm glad to see they're continuing to invest big money and in making this api simpler and you know anybody who's had to do any type of localization for a product um, knows that this could be a really difficult problem to solve without you know spending a lot of money on it so the fact that just a simple api request away saves you a ton of time ton of money and allows you to probably get to more languages much more quickly yeah, 20 bucks for a million characters it's just incredible yeah yeah pretty crazy uh, Google now will allow you to save money by stopping and starting compute engine instances on a schedule. So GCP has a new uh, capability to use the, the managed cron scheduler to stop and start VMs. Uh, they have a basic quick start for cloud scheduler now available to you, uh, and it's out there ready for you to use right now, which is great. Um, I was a little miffed that this was not a feature they had up previously. Uh, I was surprised that they, you couldn't just do this uh, with their with their Lambda function competitor or whatever, but... Uh, Nice to see they have this kind of as a little bit higher level uh, service available from them. Yeah, it's funny that that was like the missing feature at Amazon for years. Mm -hmm. There was whole companies were starting up saying we're gonna we're gonna start and stop your EC2 instances on a schedule. That seems like the simplest thing to implement, and both of them waited so long to implement it. It's just nuts. Azure had it a little bit late too. I don't think they had a launch either. It's amazing this this very simple concept of you know hey you're going to stop and start instances to save money and only have capacity on demand and then you know it's only tied to auto scaling groups and all those other things where 
several workloads. You know, I just know I needed one server during the day because when my developer is working, and then at eight or five o'clock he goes home, I can just be turned off, and I can schedule that without any machine learning, any complexity, any auto scaling rules. For such a simple use case that they all kind of overlook initially. Well, I think it's that that uh, general um, thought process of we're going to build this great infrastructure that works with cloud native apps. And hey, cloud native apps, all servers are uh, stateless. So you can just terminate those and build new ones on the fly when you need them again. Giving people a little more wiggle room would be great. Yeah. Uh, so there's been an update to Google's compute engine pricing. Uh, they're saying they're creating more choice and less complexity. And they have a money quote in their article. You shouldn't need an advanced degree in finance to get the most out of your cloud investment. And you definitely shouldn't have to worry about your cloud provider covering up costs under layers of complexity. Uh, which is a lovely shot fired at AWS and Azure. <laughs> but they, uh, these new pricing enhancements uh, that they are announcing for this week uh, was extended committed use discounts to support now GPUs, uh, cloud TPU pods, and local SSDs. Uh, the committed use discounts are a deal for predicting, uh, for providing predictable steady state usage, and savings represent over a 55% savings over the on-demand version of these services, which is kind of their version of uh, uh, RIs in some ways. And they also have a new capacity reservation capability for Compute Engine. So reservations allow you to reserve resources in a specific zone to use later. Uh, reservations consume resources just like normal VMs, so any discounts will apply automatically. Uh, so pretty nice uh, if you need to reserve that capacity for DRBCP reasons. You can have that capability as well as the new pricing enhancements to committed use discounts. Yeah, those, that, that pricing model is so much simpler. It, just in practice, you look at trying to manage your RIs, and it does. It takes it takes real effort to be out there um, making sure you know what you're using, converting your convertible RIs to the right ones, making sure they're in the right regions. Uh, it seems like a lot of overhead to just give the uh, hyperscaler the assurance they need to go ahead and build out infrastructure. It's interesting, the reservation model. I'd, I wish I wouldn't have to do that. I see why some contractual obligations for things like HIPAA and some of the FedRAMP requirements require you to have dedicated capacity on standby. But it does it does feel sort of completely opposite of what the cloud message really is, um, which is that you should have capacity on demand and it should be available to you for a simple API call. Now, in the event of a major region failure beyond you know a, a software error like Google's, uh, and who actually had a, a tidal wave take out a data center region for one of these providers or some other horrific event. Um, potentially, there is a risk of that capacity not being available to you on demand, but we also don't know yep. any idea what the capacity of these data centers is. And that reserve capacity, you know, what's the guarantee of that as well? There's still some questions about how that gets traced back, but still nice to have it if you had to have this requirement. At least you have a contractual commitment. So uh, the responsibility could potentially flow downhill if it isn't there and you were paying for your reservation. So they, uh, they gave a nice little timeline of the, you know, the different things they've done for pricing innovation, or they consider to be pricing innovation. So they, they talk about being the first one for permanent billing, uh, the first one to provide sustained use, sustained use discounts uh, in 2014, and then they went to per second billing in 2017 with the committed use discounts. So they, they do feel like they're making a lot of uh, major inroads in the pricing of cloud and they're trying to simplify the story for everybody. So that's that's good. I, I, that's what Google's one of Google's main uh, advantages over the other players. It's not a bad place to uh, bet on. Yeah, I mean, that's look at one of the main pain points in public cloud, and it's forecasting your spend and controlling your spend. Hey, everyone. Jonathan here. 
I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, maybe to help you with our forecasting, uh, Azure Forecasting has added several new features uh, for their forecasting module in the ML stack. Uh, they first released this uh, forecasting module in 2018, and they built out several new capabilities, including a, a new forecasting function, a rolling origin cross-validation capability, configurable lags, uh, rolling window aggregate features, and holiday detection and featureization, So, uh, which I can see you might need if you have uh, on-demand infrastructure that isn't scaling up on uh, a holiday. You might want to have that factored into your forecast. <laughs> so definitely some nice right. uh, improvements there as well. Yeah, definitely. So I don't know uh, where you were earlier uh, in the week when the pigs started flying uh, through the sky. <laughs> but uh, I, I about fell out of my chair when I read that Microsoft and Oracle uh, have agreed to interconnect the Microsoft Azure and Oracle Cloud together. So mutual customers of Azure and Oracle can now migrate and run mission-critical enterprise workloads across Azure and Oracle Cloud. Yeah, I mean, I, the only thing I can imagine here is uh, is that there are people who want to use infrastructure as a service on Azure, and they are probably running their Oracle Finances or HR app um, hosted on Oracle's cloud, and those two things need to talk to each other. Yeah, it's... I can't imagine people are going to be migrating the other workloads back and forth. Yeah, I mean, they had a couple of different examples of things you could do. Um, so, like, for example, Azure and Oracle Cloud are connected. Uh, so you could then, you know, extend your on-premise data center to both clouds. And so then you could basically have your Oracle databases running on Oracle with the best that Oracle can provide to you, running to an application, running on Azure's function process, all connecting back to some type of system that's on your private data center. Um, the All of the SaaS applications that Oracle offers you are available through this interactivity as well as a collaborative support model between Oracle and Microsoft. So you don't have to call you know, Oracle and tell them their parts broken. You just call Microsoft and tell them, hey, the Oracle portion of our app is not functioning. Oh, nice. Um, so that's pretty nice. Uh, they also have tightly integrated the Oracle applications into the Azure um, Active Directory. So you can use Azure as your identity provider, which simplifies some of that. Uh, and there's a couple of quotes that I'll, I'll read off here from the different articles. Uh, Scott Guthrie, from Executive Vice President of Microsoft Cloud and AI Division says, as the cloud of choice for the enterprise with over 95% of the Fortune 500 using Azure, we have always been first and foremost focused on helping our customers thrive on their digital transformation journeys. With Oracle's enterprise expertise, this alliance is a natural choice for us as we help our joint customers accelerate the migration of enterprise applications and databases to the public cloud. And then uh, Don Johnson from uh, Oracle says, the Oracle cloud offers a complete suite of integrated applications for sales, services, marketing, human resources, finance, supply chain, and manufacturing, plus highly automated and secure generation two infrastructure featuring the Oracle autonomous database. Oracle and Microsoft have served enterprise customers' needs for decades. With this partnership, our joint customers can migrate their entire set of existing applications to the cloud without having to re-architect anything, preserving the large investments they have already made. 
So really fascinating. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, you know, I wonder how much of this is an admittance by Oracle that the people who want to use Oracle Cloud are the people using Oracle's products <laughs> that, yep. you know, they don't want to use anything else from Oracle though. They don't want their infrastructure. They don't want any of their compute. They don't want their function service. They just want, you know, my, my exadata system or my, my e-business people soft capability running on Oracle being run by Oracle, but I want everything else somewhere else. And I want to make that function happen. Yeah. I think that's what Oracle's really good at doing is buying really good, uh, uh, SAS delivered apps and then, uh, integrating them into their suite. I can't, it's just going downstream to infrastructure as a service. I just don't see that ever. I don't see them ever being competitive there. Yeah. It's interesting though, that you consider how much Oracle and Microsoft SQL server have uh, been at odds with each other for so long. I'm just kind of shocked this partnership exists. I would have, you know, especially with TK now over at Google, you would think that would be the more natural place for this integration to happen first. Uh, but the fact that it came out with yeah. Azure first is really interesting. Well, you know, one of the ways to think about it, though, is that I think Microsoft and Oracle see the writing on the wall that uh, the software is going to be free at some point, and they're not going to be able to rely on those big uh, licenses to for the long-term health of their companies. It's hosting the workloads that are where the they're going to get their their bang for their buck, just like you know uh, Aurora uh, and Spanner and these other tools that are effectively you're just paying for the infrastructure below them and you're getting the you're getting the software for free so they're gonna have to adapt to that yeah yeah it's interesting if you wonder if uh, andy jassy and warner vogels hadn't been quite uh, attacking or the same level of this partnership would have been amazon too so just uh, interesting yeah. interesting times yeah. Uh, but yeah those pigs they flew pretty fast <laughs> <laughs> All right. Awesome. Amazon is introducing uh, AWS Systems Manager Ops Center to enable faster issue resolution. The new Ops Center tool allows you to view, investigate, and resolve operational issues related to your environment. Or environment. Uh, Ops Center complements existing case management systems and integrates via uh, simple uh, notification service and public Amazon SDKs. Uh, its system aggregates data from config, CloudTrail, resource descriptions, and Amazon CloudWatch events. And the new UI navigation experience under ops management is where you can find this data simply and quickly. Yeah, you know, that this is an area I saw most, like almost all customers that we talk to who are looking to run workloads in the cloud. We're going to architect, we're going to implement, we're going to test, we're going to migrate. And then they just sort of assume that the ops end is going to be there for them. And I don't think it's a I don't think it's a great assumption. I don't think it's expected that that type of technology would automatically be in your cloud provider. But um, the fact that people make that mistake often, I think this is gonna I think there's gonna be a lot of uh, uptake of these tools and technologies uh, where people don't know how to do this on the cloud. So what have you been doing to solve this problem at Foghorn for customers who have the same need? Have you guys been partnering with other companies to do this, or are you guys just building something on top of Amazon? That with stitching it together with duct tape and bubble gum. Yeah, we're usually, uh, sometimes our customers already, you know, they have a big investment in existing tools. So we help them extend those tools into the cloud, uh, which is not always uh, ideal since a lot of those legacy tools aren't, uh, you know, really made to manage ephemeral type workloads. And then other times we're, uh, we're helping configure the cloud native uh, tools. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, you're gluing those together with, Python or aggregating into dashboarding tools, et cetera, and, and sort of building your own. 
And then some just go with like a, you know, some of the new uh, cloud native tools out there, like Datadog and others. Yeah. I've seen definitely people using Datadog or SignalFX, et cetera, to do this kind of work. Um, but, you know, not all of them handle logging, not all of them handle the context of the Amazon world. So it's, it's definitely nice to see this. Um, it's a bit expensive, I thought, you know, for pricing on this new services uh, based on API requests and uh, ops items. Uh, so ops items are basically $2.97 per thousand items. And API calls are 0.03 uh, per 1,000 requests. So it's definitely not an area that you're going to be doing a lot of real-time API calls to check status on things. Uh, and how often right. you actually look at them is going to be interesting. But still nice to have uh, the capability. And maybe the prices will come down in the future as they get more more use cases for it. Yeah. Well, and compare, you know, is, is an EC2 instance an item or maybe a package of a few items that... I mean, look at that price versus uh, a per-server charge from Datadog or those tools. I mean, yep. this is pretty cheap compared to that. That's true. I mean, in some cases, uh, with like some of these tools that you pay per uh, transaction process, right? So if you're sending a CPU metric every, every second or every five seconds, you're paying for every metric that is received by the other side of the platform. So mm-hmm. depending on how this is metered and dealt with it may be significantly cheaper than some of those other options that are out there yeah especially if you value engineer it you don't collect everything every second if you don't need to yeah definitely and there's definitely some things you can do with aggregating data sets for less important metrics um so you're not sending as many but you still get the data when you need it and there's lots of different options for those type of things and there's some good techniques out there on the web yeah uh, Google has uh, made an acquisition of a company called Looker uh, for $2.6 billion. Uh, Looker apparently had approximately about 1,600 customers. Uh, Looker is a BI tool that natively integrates into BigQuery, AWS Redshift, and Snowflake. Uh, and the acquisition provides a tool that is easy as Microsoft Power BI and as deep as Tableau. Uh, and then, funny enough, four days later, Salesforce announced that they purchased Tableau. <laughs> so- oh, I missed that. <laughs> Yeah, I miss that. Yeah, I, it, you know, the, I think it's awesome. I think that this is a huge, this is a, a, a key. This is the window into that big data. And it's key for every provider to have a really slick method of, you know, visualizing that data. But the claim that it's uh, the goal is multi-cloud just because the tool supports, supports multiple clouds right now, I think is, um, I don't know if that's, I hope that's not really their entire goal here. I mean, I hope their goal here is to help people get that unique view into their data. And each of them are going to have their own. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some time the multi-cloud aspect of the tool uh, gets deprecated or gets left behind as far as features and enhancements. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, TK said, uh, one of the things that is challenging for organizations and operationalizing business intelligence that we feel that Looker has done really well is it gives you a single place to model your data, define your data definitions, like what's revenue, who's got, who's a gold customer, or how many server tickets are open, and allows you then to blend the data across individual data silos so that as an organization, you're working off a consistent set of metrics uh, from Curian. So that, yeah, definitely you see that they're, you see this is a way, way to kind of define these applications across multiple clouds, have that data aggregate up into the reporting viewpoint, and then you kind of get that good picture of what the business impact really is for some of these services. So yeah, it's overall interesting. Um, you know, the fact that this is purchased so closely to Tableau getting purchased by Salesforce, uh, you know, 
how do you think about the fact that this acquisition was $2.6 billion where Tableau was picked up for $15.6 billion by Salesforce? And that means that Tableau was on the market at the same time Looker was, and Google could have probably bought either one, and they chose this one over Tableau. You know, that I, I think it's a perfect fit. I think both of those companies found the right home because uh, Google's looking for a technology. And the, the extra price that Salesforce paid for Tableau, they're paying for the customers and the revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and Looker is that I, I think Looker has obviously been, you know, it's newer. So they're not going to have uh, probably the depth of um, what, default reporting and, and all the things that, uh, you know, big legacy companies are expecting to have in the product. But the technology being cloud native uh, is it just seems to fit Google's culture a lot better. I wonder about that because one of the things that Google's trying to do is get big into the enterprise. And if they had bought Tableau, they would have gotten a foot in the door, potentially a lot of enterprise customers. But it would be interesting to see you know, what that thought process was. But I agree with you. I, I do think they end up in the right places. Uh, but it is kind of an interesting what if. Like, you guys could have had Tableau over this company. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, you could have had both. That's the other option. You could have had both. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, hopefully this pushes, I mean, Microsoft Power BI is a great product. Tableau is a great product. Uh, this Looker product, at least my analysis of it, you know, when it got purchased, it looks pretty great. It definitely makes you wonder what Amazon's going to do with their Quick Sites product. You know, are they going to really get that? Yeah. Product, uh, you know, put some more energy behind it. Because I think it has potential to be a really great product, but it, it needs some work. Yeah, for sure. And Looker, I've, I've, uh, I've had a few demos of Looker. And it is really slick. It is pretty software. And that, that goes a long way. But pretty software that people want to use, they use more. Yep. Well, that's the thing with Tableau, too, is you know, it has pretty visualizations, which executives wanted to see. And that's why a lot of companies have made it their BI standard for visualization. Uh, and then, I, yep. you know, of course, in Tableau's case, you end up using your BI warehouse from somewhere else like SQL or BigQuery and anything as well. So overall, though, really interesting to see this acquisition space, uh, you know, basically kind of consolidating a little bit. And, and, you know, is this the end of this era of a bunch of new different port reporting paradigms? Or is this now the new era of consolidation for a few more years where people, you know, consolidate market share? So should we, uh, should we predict who buys Click? Uh, Azure well, I mean, or Click, uh, Click is, Azure uh, or AWS? Click is owned by a private equity company right now. So we'll see. They like to buy things. They like to sell things. They do like <laughs> to buy things and they do like to sell them. But uh, I, I don't think it was that long ago they bought Click. So we'll see. But yeah. uh, we'll find out. All right. Amazon uh, Personalize is uh, now generally available. Uh, this was announced as a preview at reInvent 2018. Amazon Personalize, of course, is the fully managed service that powers the private or the customization experience of Amazon.com. And now you can create your own private customized personalization ex- recommendations for your applications with little to no machine learning experience required. Sounds cool. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, anybody who's doing e-commerce shopping or anything where, you know, you might have somebody who's interested in one product or another really wants to get into the personalization space to allow them to make recommendations and to provide uh, capabilities. And, and, you know, the way to do that in the past 20 years has been building a lot of custom algorithms. You know, Netflix has had contests for how to do it with um, their products. You know, their huge Netflix database of movies and which ones, you know, I watched Schindler's List, and so I might be interested in some other movie about the Holocaust or World War II, you know, it, all kinds of things like that that you, these tools provide you and can give you that capability. And to have this ability just available to you as an API um, is really powerful. It seems super powerful. I'm just like, I never work at that level, so it sounds awesome. I can't wait for somebody to love it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. 
Well, and maybe maybe uh, you guys can figure out how to get personalized to be something for cloud deployments. Right? You know, hey, you, uh, I just saw you used uh, Redshift the other day. Maybe you'd be interested in Amazon QuickSight or uh, <laughs> some other tool. How about we do it with engineers? Hey, uh, see, uh, Matt did some work for you on Terraform last week. Uh, maybe you'd like to talk to uh, Derek. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Uh, uh, we, we can come up with some really interesting use cases maybe for this. We should, we should talk about this offline. I don't know about you, but if I'm browsing the web and follow a link, if it doesn't load in a few seconds, I'll click away and go elsewhere. Performance of each site directly affects whether it gets my attention, and more importantly, my business. Your business runs on applications, and whether it's signing up, searching, or selfies, it better work. A modern application today is built from multiple components or services, and each one of these services has a stack that will make or break the performance of your application. That's your customer's experience and their impression of you. So how do you manage it? You don't. You let software do it for you. Turbonomic automatically manages application resources for you. Their software identifies and executes the right resource decisions at the right time at every layer of the stack, ensuring your applications get the compute, storage and network they need when they need it. Turbonomic is trusted by more than 2,000 digitally transforming customers and runs over 100 of the Fortune 500's hybrid and multi-cloud environments, continuously assuring the performance of their complex and dynamic applications. Check out Turbonomic today at turbonomic.com slash cloudpod. Again, that is turbonomic.com slash cloudpod. Links in the show notes. All right, that's, uh, that's it for the new news this week. Let's uh, move on to you for the lightning round. Awesome. So since we can't score with one competitor, we're just going to cruise through the lightning round and we can still comment, but we won't score today. Okay, for the lightning round today, we'll start with Amazon API Gateway now supports VPC endpoint policies. So what's the difference between an endpoint and an endpoint with a policy? This is a little unclear to me. If we, can you have an endpoint without a policy? I, I would think you have to, right? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. AWS Glue now provides VPC interface endpoints. Mm, feels sticky. Oh, I just thought of something. Jonathan could take his time on these. He totally he might, could. He might be a shoo-in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Amazon Inspector adds CIS benchmark support for Amazon Linux 2. How about Amazon Inspector add support for all the other flavors of Linux they don't support today, but so we can actually use this product. <laughs> all you got to do is switch to Linux too. It's so easy. So easy. It's so so easy. easy. It's just Red Hat, right? It's, it's a yeah. big deal. It's just sent to us. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, Google has announced integrated partnership for Snowflake on Google Cloud Marketplace. Ah, perfect timing for them to buy Looker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't even think of that. Maybe another announcement is coming. Mm. No, I hope not. Azure. <laughs> I always thought that name was hilarious. Since it's a great name for a, for a data warehousing company like the Snowflake, because everyone's data warehouse is a Snowflake. It's a, it's fantastic. I know. Done by them. I yeah. They uh, they ping me regularly, wanting to get into the door and, and talk to some POCs and stuff. And I, I'm like, yeah, I I would definitely look at it if I had a need for this. Azure has released new mobility SDKs for Azure Maps. Who else would use Maps other than mobile people? So it seems obvious. Who would use Azure Maps? I, I don't from their mobile phone. I mean, was it that used to be Bing Maps? Is it? There you go. I can't wait to Bing it. There you go. Gonna Bing my map. AWS Organizations now supports tagging and untagging of AWS accounts. So this is the first tagging announcement I've seen that mentioned the word untagging. 
which now makes me wonder, are they going to announce that all the other services that support tagging will now support untagging in the future? Because uh, <laughs> why, why the special the specificity of untagging now in the headline? Yeah, really. Yeah, AWS orgs tagging accounts. That's, I guess, the minute they got up to uh, automating account creation. Uh, this is the next step. We got to tag it so we know what to do with it. Well, you you already tag it now, or you put it into organization OU. OUs. Which was yeah. sort of tagging already, so it's it's a little interesting. I, I'm not quite sure what they're doing there, but I'm sure it'll come make sense in some other product release in about two weeks. I wish there was some secret list that we could see of the individual use cases that drove them to create these features, because you know there were with their customers. Oh, and they'd be like, sure. oh yeah, totally, I get it. Well, I mean, there's been some other ones that you know I've I've been able to get inside baseball information from people, and like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Now you explain it in that context, but. You know, that context would have been perfect in the press release. Yeah, exactly. All right. Amazon ECS now supports increased ENI limits for tasks in AWS VPC networking mode. Uh, which is really a feature they built for Fargate somehow, but they've now made it available to you. <laughs> Trickle down. Trickle down. Trickle down. AWS well-architected tool now supports eight times more text in the notes fields. Clearly a product feature requested by an ivory tower architect who likes to write a lot of words. Yep. <laughs> what would you do with your eight times more text if you gave you uh, What are you going to do with it? I just... I mean, you guys do walk ahead reviews. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. It's, I'm nothing. Nothing. Short and sweet, baby. That's what I do. Nice. Nice. New digital course on edX now available for building applications with DynamoDB. I do really love this trend that all of the cloud providers are kind of doing now where they're offering, you know, basically a really core technology training on one of the partner companies like Udemy or edX or any of these guys. Because Sometimes I just want to learn the technology, but I need a really good application story for it. And that's not something you're going to get in a YouTube video or, uh, you know, reading the documentation. So I really love these type of courses that come out. I, I poked around this edX course. It's a, it's a good course. Amazon ECS support for Windows 2019 is now GA. As I say, every time someone talks about Windows containers, don't use Windows containers. <laughs> even though it's available, even though it's supported, don't do it. Just don't do it. Amazon RDS for SQL Server now supports multi-file native restores. So this is hilarious that this has taken this long. I literally think I made the feature request for this five years ago when they first announced <laughs> RDS for SQL Server. Because the way that you would speed up uh, backups on SQL Server to fit into a backup window was that you would split them into multiple files and write to them simultaneously uh, because of Windows threading and the way that they deal with disk I.O. It's stupid. Um, so th this was something you would do a lot. And then when you would want to move your database to RDS, you're like, yeah, you can't use that backup because it's multi-file. So then you'd have to spin up another server, restore uh. the multi-file, and then basically yep. back it up again, and it would take however long it's going to take to back it up, which could be hours because of the little things I just mentioned. And then you could import it into RDS. And so you had this like crazy multi-step process to get from a multi-file backup to a, something you put into RDS. And now they solved it uh, now five years later. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> I can imagine the, then the restore not working and just doing the whole process over again. Oh, yes, it happened. <laughs> yeah. Amazon EC2 announces new host recovery. Uh, I like that this is dedicated for dedicated hosts. Uh, and I assume this is the same technology that they use in their primary cloud. So nice to see this again trickling down. AWS CloudWatch launches dynamic data labels on dashboards. Which is super cool, but also going to be super confusing when you're trying to find 
that data set in your CloudWatch metrics that you want to you want to go look at more in more depth because uh, the data labels change what's in the dashboard. But it's pretty nice, you know, being able to have it, you know, highlight different colors or different things based on certain parameters or change the text. I think that's really nice a feature for dashboards. Yeah, it's an area that it feels like CloudWatch is so could be so powerful if it had a better interface. So all of these things I think are super cool. And the last one, AWS Code Commit supports two additional merge strategies and merge conflict resolution. I mean, I know they exist, but how many people are using more than just the standard ones? <laughs> like it's it's very interesting that this is a not feature. me. I'm sure there's a customer yeah. though, of course. So the, I mean, the two that are, the two that are supporting the squash merge, which I understand the squash merge reasons for that one, because uh, you kind of you know break down the, the other commits. But the three-way merge, that's an interesting one completely to me. Uh, but you know the the conflict resolution now you have a console actually inside the uh, resolution editor inside the console, so you can fix it on the fly, which is kind of nice. But uh, overall, overall, this is good enhancements for people who need it. Yeah. Yep. I, I think there's a few more enhancements hopefully coming to code commit as well. Yeah, no, I'm definitely hoping for more enhancements on all of their pipeline stuff, especially when they're competing with Azure DevOps, um, which is a much better product for some of these things. Awesome. And that wraps it up. And that is the week in cloud. We would like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Turbonomic. Subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net for sign-up instructions.